Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast that aims to separate fact from fiction. You join us for the last of our scientific trio of episodes. Yes, that's right, today we are getting physical. Yeah, we've got a mass of exciting things to discuss today. We've got a huge amount of energy for this topic, so let me accelerate right into it. As we navigate the world of ancient physics, we'll need some scientists to guide us, so let me introduce you to the lab. Adding some gravity to the situation, we have Senya, who'd love to keep us grounded on all things ancient Rome. Meg is a force to be reckoned with, as she tells us all about the ancient Greeks. And we've got Barney, with a laser focus on the ancient Near East. I'm Flo, and the closest I get to particle physics is when I brush some toast crumbs off my duvet. So let's pick up some momentum and banish that inertia by learning together, dear listener. So in our chemistry episode, we spoke a little bit about atoms being the smallest thing that makes up, well, the entire universe as we know it. Can we expand those atoms a little bit? Obviously, in a controlled environment, because I don't want there to be a large explosion or the end of the world. So let's expand a bit on atoms. Xenia, I think you have a little bit more to discuss. Yes. So previously, Meg told us about all of the um, really amazing uh, Greek philosophers who came up with the ideas of atoms and and argued for them and thought about what different shapes they were. So uh, Lucretius is a Roman author who writes poetry, not scientific treatises, <laughs> but he, he really, really liked atoms and he loved physics. And he, uh, he built on the Epicurean ideas of uh, of what makes up the universe and um, Epicureanism has a lot of thoughts about um, about what atomic theory is as well. Um, although he interestingly doesn't call them atoms um, because as Meg said before, atoms means indivisible. Atomos cannot cut it. Instead, Lucretius talks about things like primordia rerum, like these, these basic building blocks of things or the, the beginnings of things, primordial things, or he calls them seeds, or he calls them matter, which actually, this is a very interesting etymology. Um, it's materies, which is dis- derived from the word mother, mater. So it's like the, the sort of genesis things. The mother of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's cute. And that, that's a lovely way of putting it. And it works really nicely in poetry that he's got all of these nice um, different ways of phrasing it. But I had to translate this guy in the third year undergrad. And it's not fun to translate. <laughs> I was sensing a hint of bitterness there in your voice that I yeah. had to translate this guy. Yeah. Conceptually, really fascinating. Actually, in terms of the practical language, really annoying. <laughs> So Epicurus, uh, he's he's the kind of original Greek guy who thought about this atomic theory. He was actually thinking about the internal structure of atoms as well, even though they're called cannot cut, atomos cannot cut it. Um, he thought that they had internal parts as well, and he called them minima. But Lucretius doesn't like that idea. He just talks about the these primordial seeds. So Lucretius is like, no subatomic theory for me, thank you. Yeah, that's just one of a few ways in which he kind of edits that that Greek theory. But one way in which he does use poetry quite effectively to talk about um, atomic behaviour is with atomic movement. So he uses these really, really clever arguments to explain how atoms are constantly in motion. 
which we we pretty much know that now, don't we? We know that atoms are moving, that they have energy, even if they're not moving, like the energy is contained within a, like the substance, which can be released. Uh, And he talks about atomic swerve, which again can also be observed in, in different physics experiments today. And he uses that as an example of uh, proof for free will. So he's like, these atoms have free will. They move wherever they want. And that's why we also have free will, because we're made up of atoms. And every single subparticle of us has free will. Oh, cool. So we're driven by the very things that are the building blocks that make us. That's kind of funky fresh. I quite like that. Barney, in the ancient Near East, was any atomic theory happening, particle theory, any of that jazz? I feel like I often do this, immediately disappointed by saying no. It's not disappointing, it's just interesting. (laughs) That was so sad. I often do this, immediately disappoint people. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as ever, I've had some sort of lateral thoughts. But... I was thinking about what makes up physics because we've, we've talked a lot about elements and stuff for, for chemistry. So um, I had a look at like what might make up a modern physics degree and of, of the sort of the departments um, or modules that you might study in a physics degree. We've got like astrophysics, atmospheric and planetary, atomic and laser, condensed matter physics, particle physics and theoretical physics. So condensed matter and atomic physics, we got we got no chance in the ancient Near East. But I was quite glad to see astrophysics and atmospheric physics and stuff like that there because our friends in Mesopotamia did really enjoy a bit of weather prediction and astronomy. So once again, we found ourselves back at omens, uh, I think in the way that all things might tend towards the form of crab in nature. We often find ourselves um, arriving back at omens for the ancient Near East. Yeah, so I think it'd be nice to talk a little bit about about stars because um, they were they were very big observers of the heavens over in the ancient Near East. Uh, they they were the sort of the originators of our conception of the zodiac, which the Greeks then picked up. And there's a lovely eighth century BC astronomical text called Mul Athim, which means plow star. Mul being their word, the Sumerian word for uh, constellation, and the sign is made up of three little stars. That's really sweet. Very sweet. Uh, but yeah, there's there's thousands of these of these astronomical texts. So um, whilst maybe they're not sort of um, doing any physics of like planetary motion, they are certainly observing what's going on in the heavens um, and sort of trying to establish a model for for the ideal universe. So they they note down you know what planets are doing what and what what stars are twinkling, and then I think one of the main theories is that they see if there's any divergences from this, and that's how they derive omens from it. So, you know, if everything's going well in the heavens, then good news. And if things are maybe not going according to plan, uh, you know, stars are twinkling in a different way or a planet's appearing in the wrong sort of sector, then that's when bad omens come in. I'm pretty sure, aren't we all made of stardust, really, from, like, the chemicals that fart out of nebulas? I just want to say I think that's beautiful. Yeah, what the the we're all made of stardust <laughs> farts or, because, but I just think it would have blown their minds to know that we're all stardust. I think that would have been really cool to be able to go back and say, "Hey, this is what we're made of." That's a sort of a, especially without yeah, without modern science, that's a very sort of abstract idea to get your head around. But I was trying to find out if there's any sort of like theoretical physics ideas sort of going on in the ancient Near East. And I do quite like that, um, you know, the establishment of the universe 
um, is very much laid down in the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish. I think it's in the fifth tablet, um, is exactly the same as the the sort of the heavens that are described in these um, astronomical texts. So there's this there's this kind of yeah holistic conception between literature and myth and you know what we might understand as science of how of how the the skies are arranged um, and that's I think a very unfamiliar idea to us um, today but I think maybe goes some way to explaining how divinely organised the, the the heavens are supposed to be and therefore science is or can be. I think it's rather beautiful and very poetic. Yeah, I think maybe that goes some way to being like the, the Babylonian equivalent of we're all stardust. Yeah, maybe it does. Well, we've zoomed right out to space now. I'm going to save you all from doing a Brian Cox impression. But um, one of the big things that springs to mind about space and the ancients is flat earth theory. So I'm not going to wade into the conspiracy theories that are abundant today, but it is widely accepted <laughs> that the earth is not flat. Now, did the ancients believe that the earth was flat or did they think it was a nice little marble, a little blue marble? I don't know where to start really. Meg, I think I might start with you. Did the ancient Greeks think the earth was flat? Some of them did, like some early ones, and then they worked out that it was round. And I think this is a massive against the law that like for most of sort of learned history, I'm not saying there were there weren't people who thought the Earth was flat. I'm sure there were some people who thought the Earth was throughout like I don't know European history, let's say. But basically, since about the fifth century BC, like scientific, clever people have known that the Earth is round. And I feel like there's this idea that it was like fairly recent. I don't know, maybe like a kind of 18th century uh, discovery that like in the, in the the medieval peasants would have thought the Earth was um, flat. But that's just not true. Like we've known for ages that it was round. Um, the early sort of Greek scientists, philosophers did think it was flat. Well, they thought it was, this is actually a really interesting point. Um, we don't actually know who worked out that the earth was round. Uh, what, at a certain point in Greece, someone got that right. And then they very much accepted that. And that's roughly kind of fifth century BC, but we're not hundred percent sure. And that's partly because the word for round, strongulos, could either mean round or spherical. Um, so Thales of Miletus, who we've talked about quite a lot, thinks that the earth is a flat but round disc, right? So he thinks that the earth is round and you could read his writings and be like, oh, Strongulos, he thinks it's, it's a spherical earth, but he doesn't. He just thinks it's a flat disc. And this happens even in the ancient world. Some of the later authors misinterpret the early stuff and go like, oh, he's a flat earther or whatever. But it's just because of this confusion between round and spherical. So if later Greeks had access to the internet, there'd be forums of like early Greeks with flat earth theory and they were like <laughs> i dug out this stupid thread where they thought that the earth was flat <laughs> yeah exactly like it's it's really interesting and i love that, that there's this sort of linguistic misinterpretation um but yeah so thales thinks it's a, a, a disc on water he thinks it's floating on the water and then anaximander who we've spoken about before i think he's actually such a great guy kind of underrated scientist philosopher figure in ancient greece this is kind of sixth century um, BC. He thought that the Earth was still a sort of cylinder, this flat disc. He very much got that from Thales of Miletus. But he thought it was just free floating. It's not supported by anything. It's not on water. It's not on, you know, a different thing. 
it's he was one of the first I think to really get that idea that it's just sort of suspended in space and things can move above and below it and all around it so even though he was still a flat earther actually I'm not even going to call him a flat earther he was really trying his best I think he was working with very little evidence whereas flat earthers are working with all of the evidence and somehow coming to the wrong conclusion um so he did think he didn't think it was around but he got other stuff really quite right by the time we get to Plato so sort of the you know fourth century BC um it's very much accepted that the earth is round so he kind of makes reference to like well you know because the earth is round this must be true so it's very much like the earth is round we're all on board with that um and yeah aristotle the same because he comes after plato very much by that point circular earth baby nice i mean i would have thought it was fairly easy to tell that planets are round or that the moon is round so i find it a bit weird that that there was a point in time where we were like oh yeah everything except earth is round do they just think that they were balls that are floating above a sort of a flat disc that was the centre of the universe to them? Because obviously the world was quite small for the ancients, really, because they had their land, neighbouring lands and stories of lands far away. But then we must have thought that we were the universe at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I did do some research into this. I thought this was really interesting. So again, like Anaximander... Um, who's this this early 6th century uh, scientist, philosopher, love him, did think that the Earth was the centre of the universe um, and thought, but worked out that the sun was very big and very far away. Anaxagoras, who's a bit later, I just think this is so sweet. He was like, yeah, the sun's massive. Might even be bigger than the Peloponnese. <laughs> so that was his, like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> that sounded like a child. Yeah, yeah. I think the moon might actually be bigger than an elephant, actually. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> he's really not wrong, right? You could not look him in the eye and tell him he's wrong. I just think he's like I used to think I used to be able to see the Crystal Palace Tower from where I lived growing up, and I used to think it was the Eiffel Tower. And however, anyone would be like, "It's not. It's the Crystal Palace Tower." And I was like, "No, I'm pretty sure it's the Eiffel Tower, guys." Um, I know my towers, yeah, guys. Excuse come me. On. Do you know who you're talking to? Yeah, very much the the Eiffel Tower of South London, anyway. But yes, so eventually we do get so there's a guy called um, Philolaus who sort of fifth, fourth century, who worked out a cosmological model without the Earth at the centre. Really interestingly, he thinks that the centre of the universe is a big fire, a big burning thing, but it's not the sun. He thought there was a separate big burning thing with the Earth and the sun and other planets kind of going round and round it, which I think is super interesting because it's like, you're you're so nearly right that there are these like solar systems, but he thought it was different to the big hot thing that he could see. The really obvious one. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's just being a bit edgy. I have like two more sort of universe structuring facts, if if people would like them. Violently hit me with them. Violently. Architas, who's one of the candidates for might have worked out that the Earth is spherical, but probably not, probably earlier than him. This is, uh, again, sort of fifth, fourth century. He talks about an infinite universe, which I just think is really, really cool. So he has like a thought experiment where he says, imagine standing at the limit of a finite cosmos. So cosmos is the Greek word for like world or universe, or, you know, that's where we get like cosmonaut, cosmological, all of that. Cosmos is just, you know, the world, the universe. Um, if, you're, if you're standing at the limit of a finite cosmos, can you take a stick and put it beyond that limit? And very much the kind of common sense answer to that is yes. Like what's, what's stopping you? We don't think there's a boundary as such. It's just there's got to be an end at some point, but you could always stick your hand beyond that. So if that's true, then that's not the limit and there's a new limit and you can keep repeating that thought experiment. So maybe there's an infinite universe. And I just love that. Wow. Yeah, right? 
Lucretius talks about that in his poem as well. And he, he takes, um, he, he kind of takes that um, a step further as well. And he says, well, he thinks that parallel universes or multiple universes could exist as well. Because he's like, well, if we, if our world formed, why not other worlds as well? It's so cool. I've just got one more really little one, which is just that I thought this was interesting. That idea of the sort of circular motions, uh, Plato is basically a big cheese in this sense, as he is in many senses, got like a, gave an explanation of regular circular motions, um, which is his sort of account of movement in the sky, like the, the planets and everything. He didn't get it exactly right, but basically those regular circular motions, that was the accepted way that planets moved um, until 1609, when Kepler discovered that the orbits are actually elliptical rather than round. I just thought that was really interesting. Plato to 1609, that was accepted. And then Kepler was like, ah, they're ellipses. That is cool. I like that nobody could prove the big cheese wrong. In Roman times, there's a guy called Ptolemy of Alexandria who wrote like a big summary of all of those astronomical theories that um, Max just told us about. And he kind of builds on, on Plato's circular orbit theory. But because he's so determined to stick to the fact that they're circles and not ellipses, he tries to, he really tries to make like the maths and the observations fit. He gets himself into a bit of a pickle with all of these like layers on layers of circular orbits like intersecting and then on top of each other and then all of it so he, he does he even does diagrams and everything and it's like ooh, this is this is an absolute <laughs> mind melt um really <laughs> really complicated he kind of yeah just just get over complicates the whole situation um but then again you know circles it's he's so close he's so close I like that you say that he's overcomplicated it, whereas, you know, like actual physics is super easy to understand and accessible. And That was kind of where my brain was going at the end. I was like, actually, let's be fair to him. It is really hard. <laughs> it's famously quite confusing. There's been a lot of mentions of Plato being the big, a big cheese and, and other people, you know, things being cheesy. And we're talking a lot about the moon. Mm. Just thought it was worth checking if anybody in the ancient world thought that the moon was made of cheese. <laughs> I thought you were just going to check if any of us thought that. Just, <laughs> just quick checking, guys. Any? Uh... <laughs> Have we effectively proven that the moon is not cheese? Has anyone actually proved that? I'm going to say yes. Okay, well, they, that, we went that's there. your personal opinion. Yeah, we <laughs> we went there. We went on the top. We didn't try and spread any on uh, on a slice of bread, did we? Okay, maybe we're getting into a deeper discussion of what defines cheese like if you can spread it and it tastes nice does that make it cheese if we're all stardust and then cheese is stardust and then the moon is just big stardust uh go i can't believe it's not stardust <laughs> <laughs> in in the astronomical texts that we've got over in the ancient Near East, the moon is just the moon god so i wonder if that might be helpful for thinking about how the heavens were conceived oh so it's a person yeah or like divine you know the idea of celestial bodies is quite literal in this in this example in that yeah like a lot of the a lot of the stars and constellations are um sort of related to the gods in some way is that like the man in the moon <laughs> yeah exactly although moons moons tend to be feminine don't they and uh, or like mm. moon god it tends to be moon goddesses right not moon gods is that the same in the ancient near east uh the moon god is male ah oh, interesting so in Greece, there's Selene. That's the equivalent of Luna, right, Xenia? Yeah. So they're both gals. But yeah, others. I think there's um, 
I was looking at I was looking at the, the zodiac in the ancient Near East and um, and whether or not we can sort of map it onto ours because a lot of the names are similar, right? I mentioned earlier Molapin, which is the plow star, um, and there's also the crab and the divine bull, which sound quite familiar as um, Cancer and Taurus. But I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dangerous route to go down to try and work out exactly which stars they were describing in the ancient Near East and, and say that they're exactly the same as ours. And it might just be that the Greeks kind of picked up the names and then applied them to different constellations. Be a dangerous route to go down and also potentially very boring because there's like loads of stars. There's like more than 12, so it would probably take ages. <laughs> <laughs> How's this for a silly transition? Meg, you were talking about architects and that got me thinking about architects and how they might apply physics practically to building things. Because I know, for example, that um, arches were the big cheese of the architecture world, if uh, if you don't mind me stealing big cheese, Meg, because they could spread out a lot of weight over an arch versus a, a flat surface. So, Senya, I think that the Romans had a lot of uh, physics-influenced architecture, didn't they? They did. They didn't stop at arches. They went on to domes. Oh, my God. I know. So cool. Uh, and the most famous dome, arguably, of all is the Pantheon in Rome. It's really, really massive. And it's really awesome. And what's even cooler is Hadrian had it rebuilt. Yeah, man. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm picking up you know, unfavourable uh, mentions of a certain person uh, that you're you're not a big fan of, elder or younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think you might unfairly be biasing yourself towards Hadrian. Why? Why is it so good that Hadrian <laughs> did this? So this is this isn't the most special thing I think that that Hadrian did. He did also build a massive wall. Um, that was also <laughs> pretty cool. But there's less physics involved in the wall. Uh, yeah then there is someone's probably gonna fight me on this but (laughs) i would say no don't fight xenia on this it's just it's just fancy stacking that's all it is stacking mostly this wall and some interesting geographical planning but anyway yes the uh the the physics of the dome is is very cool um what i really like about this is the original guy who had the pantheon built was called agrippa he was um augustus's one of augustus's best friends And when Hadrian had the dome rebuilt, had the whole pantheon actually rebuilt, um, he didn't change the inscription on the front of the pantheon. So even though he could have taken all the credit for it, it still says, Marcus Agrippa, consul for the third time, made this in really big letters. Humble. That is very humble. Anyway, I should probably explain more about the dome. So yeah, it's, it's I believe, the biggest dome in the ancient world. And it's made of concrete. And if it's made of concrete, that makes it incredibly heavy. So why doesn't it fall down? Well, what they did was they tried all sorts of different ways to make everything lighter and also to reinforce the structure from the outside. So they made the walls extra thick to support the weight of this dome. And they also had these kind of um, binding structures to support it as it went up. And they started with like really heavy materials. So the concrete had rocks in at the bottom. And then right when you get to the top, it just has pumice stones in it, which are really, really light volcanic rocks, uh, which are full of air bubbles. So that makes it a lot lighter. And on top of that, when you go inside the Pantheon, you can see that it has these kind of cut-outy bits 
um, stacked all around it, which make it for a really pleasant like visual effect. But actually, they have a purpose in terms of the structure as well. They um, reduce the the weight of the material. So, yeah, all very clever. And what I just think is so amazing about all of this is they didn't really have like the the calculations, the theoretical calculations to work all of this out. They weren't sort of there doing, you know, X plus Y equals however many things cubed. They didn't have that. They just had their Roman numerals, which are really difficult to do maths with. Um, And what they were working off was just these kind of basic engineering principles of like, oh, if we put these rocks in this pattern, they stay up. So it's like trial and error. It is. It's trial and error. They were just, you know, accumulating all of these generations worth of knowledge and then and then just pushing the boundaries with it to apply it to this amazing dome and all of these phenomenal arches that are all over the, all over Roman cities. One thing I would say for them is they were quite good at ratios, like right back from Pythagoras and his golden ratio and his lovely triangles. The Romans were kind of building on that. And so that's that's one way in which you can kind of get around the difficulty of doing maths with Roman numerals. If you can be like, okay, if if these two things, these two numbers or these two amounts are in relation to each other, then if I increase one, I have to increase the other to that proportion. Otherwise, the, the thing's not going to work. Ah. So that that's kind of how they they worked it all out. So they'd be really good at baking for like a party and, and they're like, they've got a recipe for 10 people and actually 16 people are turning out. They'd be like, don't worry about that. I know ratios. <laughs> a great Roman yeah. baker. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I don't want to, I don't want to knock them though, but there is something that they were a bit silly about the dome. See, I've seen five minute crafts and I've seen them make a pizza oven, which has a domed top. And all they actually needed to do was make a big pile of sand and then pour some quick dry cement on it, which is definitely suitable to be heated to the temperature that you want a pizza oven to be at. And then you just scoop out the sand afterwards. I mean, that would have been easier, right? Just fill the pantheon with sand and then pour yeah. it over the top. It's a lot yeah. of sand. Not bad. That's like, yeah, it, was a, it would be a lot of sand. It would be more than like maybe 12 million sand. but <laughs> Sand. Yeah. <laughs> So um, speaking of uh, big arches in engineering, how about this Archimedes? Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> oh. 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 Yeah, good. It's, uh, yeah. That's yeah. hmm. all right. Different etymology, though. I did actually really embarrassingly planned that, that joke. Uh, and oh you did did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, like in advance, like when I was doing my research on like Tuesday, I was like, wait, arch... Immediate. Yo, now you've said it a second time. Actually, that's really funny. Now you've said it a second time. Actually. Oh, Sorry. okay. Should I do it a third one for more, even more laughs? Do you know what? Save it. Save it for another time. Okay. I'll bring it back when you're yeah. least expecting it. Yeah. Arch the Ark Archimedes. Obviously, is who I'm talking about. His the Ark in his name is like a Greek word meaning sort of first or foremost or powerful. Um, and the the Medes is actually kind of cunning or skill, which is also the root of Medea's name. Um, whereas I think arch as in you know structure is from latin arcus like a bow or a curve i think um anyway i just thought that was interesting but that's what like if you say arch nemesis you're saying it in the archimedes greek sense anyway what do you guys know about archimedes give me the the headline eureka yeah i've got a bit of an against the law about the eureka thing i don't think i understand physics enough 
to fully explain this, but I'll like try. Wait, let's start at the basics. So the so the the known thing that you'd learn about in school is that he has to is it a crown? There might be a knockoff crown. A king's got a crown and he's like, I don't know if this is pure gold or silver or something. And he's like, I want this crown to be pure gold. And if it's not, I'm going to um, be really cross with the person who's made it. And Archimedes like, how? Oh, my God. How do I work out whether or not it's pure gold? Um, gold displaces more or less water than other metals. So I'm going to I'm going to splash it about in the bath with me. And he's sat in the bath and he's thinking about contemplating his knobbly knees. I'm presuming they're knobbly. I don't know why, but I picture them as being knobbly. And as he leans back in the bath, water splashes over the side of the tub and he goes, oh, oh my God, I'm genius. (laughs) So he gets out of the bath naked and runs through the street shouting, Eureka, which I don't know what it actually means. Maybe I've got it or... I found it. I found it. yeah i don't want to know what he found in the bath but he (laughs) he found it and he's running naked through the streets now that is what i was taught happened Mm. is that true no oh (laughs) i mean it might have done we don't have any i obviously can't disprove that that happened but there's two problems with the story the first is that it comes from a Roman author who lived several decades later um, called Vitruvius. So it doesn't, it's not a contemporary account and it's a, also not a sort of geographically uh, similar, like they weren't, they didn't live in the same place. The second problem, and this is where my physics is going to become a problem, is that that's not actually how you'd, that's not, the, the his principle, I'm going to read you out, any object totally or partially immersed in a fluid or liquid is buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the fluid displaced by the object. So basically, apparently, what he's trying to work out is the density of the crown. Mm. But you can't, unless you manage to measure the water in an incredibly precise way, you could not work out the density of the crown by just like seeing how much water it displaces because it's about the, the way that it's buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the fluid. So you need to be weighing things and measuring the force. So what if, if the story was true, what he would have had to have done is put the crown and pure gold on a scale, so on either side of a scale, and then put the scale into the water. And then if they're buoyed up at the same rate, then they're the same. I'm not sure, I may have misunderstood that, but basically that's the second problem, is that in order to work out what he wanted to work out, the crown story would not work. You'd need some more, you need some scales in there, you need some pure gold. So basically there's like, there's layers to it. So Archimedes also had a, had a, a screw. I mean, let's not talk about his private life, but he had a screw for bringing water up that's legit. That is legit. Yeah. Okay. That's 100% legit. I've got no against the laws for you there. He did. He had a bloody good screw. Um, and we still use it today. That's what, one of the things I found out. We've not really got any... Well, we have got better methods than that, but it's still so efficient that it is still used on sort of building projects today. The the circular motion of the screw um, raising the water efficiently. Very cool. Cool guy. That is a cool guy. Should we do a quick fur round of screw or you, Rika? Sort of a smash or pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that not both smash though? Well, if one is, uh, if one is against the law and the other one is. Not. Oh, nice. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, so Eureka, Eureka is fake, and the screw is. Yeah. Mm. Did he not also have some mirrors to sink ships? Yes. Oh, I, I didn't look into that one in detail, but he he was all he, the angles. I feel like is the uniting thing here. He was all about the angles. Um, so we did something about like the reflections. Yeah, I don't know masses about that, but I'm, I believe that's right. He gave a 
he he proved that levers could lift heavy objects as well. So he was very interested in like the angles and the movements of stuff. He loves a bit of fulcrum action. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nice. So as the weather is very hot, I'm going to very suddenly transition back to sort of planets and weather and astrophysics and what well, what's the study of weather called? Meteorology. Meteorology. That's it. So I feel like it sort of suits Barney, the engineer east weather. We've done an episode before previously on weather, haven't we? But let's let's have a look at the sort of the ancient Near East and their sort of scientific view of it, if if there is one. Yeah. So I think insofar as I sort of found that maybe one of the best ways to look at physics in the ancient Near East is is through astrophysics or astronomy at least. Um, weather is a, is a phenomenon related to that in in their conception of the world as well. Um, so weather seems to be caused by things going on you know, in, in the heavens, celestial observations is how they, is how they make predictions about weather. Um, so there's no word for weather, um, per se, but there's, there's plenty of predictions about like what might cause rain and what might cause high water levels and flooding and stuff like that. And it's often to do with when and where planets appear in the sky. Um, and, and there's a sense that since the planets move in a predictable way, as we've seen from these astronomical texts, um, weather should do the same, which I guess, is kind of like I think we know in the, in the modern world that's that's not necessarily true. Although I quite like that it anticipates the idea that we have about recurring weather systems. You know, like people might talk about El Nino, and in a in a classic sense, weather predictions follow that same formula that we've talked about so many times of the sort of if X then Y. So an omen about the weather might say something like, if the crab's stars are sparkling, high water will come. Um, and there's, there's sort of a sense of analogy in how they're predicting which constellations might cause which weather effects. So like aquatic signs might have an effect on how wet things are going to be, for example. I, th- I feel like sometimes we have that in relation to astrology, like today. Yes, if Mercury is in retrograde, then... Yeah, then you're going to have a romantic time. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's a good modern reception of how these omens worked. Except they were obviously taken as you know a lot more a lot more um, literal and reliable maybe than people might understand astrology to be today. But speaking for myself, some people will see astrology as <laughs> entirely reliable. Yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> that's pretty cool. Anyway, um, I'm going to think about my favourite things from today that I've learned, and I invite all of you to do the same. Uh, Meg, I'm going to start with you. What was your favourite thing that you learned today? There were so many, but I think my favourite thing was um, Xenia's explanation of the Pantheon and how they built it and how amazing it is. And I've been there and it is beautiful. I think I might have shed a tear. But I also just really liked uh, Flo's suggestion that it's essentially a giant pizza oven. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember in the pandemic, in the first lockdown, there was that joke that they were going to make a massive lasagna in Wembley Stadium? (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) Do people remember that? Was that like a fever dream that I had? I don't. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, there was a joke that they were going to make a massive lasagna in Wembley Stadium, and I feel like that's the ancient equivalent, is the massive pizza that we're we're making in the Pantheon. (laughs) In the pan, the pan, deep Pantheon pizza. Oh, my God, with the puns today, Meg. Yeah. Well done. Um, Xenia, I'm going to go over to you because you're the one with the the Pantheon fact. What was your favourite thing from today? I loved the guy who thought that the sun was bigger than the Peloponnese. It was the yes. cutest thing I've heard in a really long time. And I'm, I'm what, was, what was his name? Uh, that was Anaxagoras. Great guy. Fifth century. 
It's really nice, isn't it? It's like a child. <laughs> it's really cute. Well, we say it's like a child at the time. It was probably extremely well respected. Like, <laughs> sorry, so sorry. <laughs> look at this idiot from the ancient world, not knowing facts <laughs> about stuff that we can Google now. <laughs> Could he not just Google it? What an idiot. I mean, what a loser. Um, Barney, I'm coming over to you. What was your favourite thing that you've learned today? I, I think I quite liked hearing about um, Archimedes. Um, especially the the Archimedes screw, that that's still um, you know still a reliable invention of our old naked friend, or or not so naked. It depends. It depends. And I will I will hereby be uh, instigating screw or you screw or you yeah, yeah. as a, as a bit. Can we have a jingle for that maybe, Flo? Yeah, I'll work on yeah. it. Next time I'm having a migraine, I'll come out with something really special. <laughs> I think I was a bit stunned to find out that Eureka is possibly not uh, true based on contemporary uh, uh, writings. I was a bit shocked about that. But, you know, I'm willing to willing to forgive my primary school teachers. And that's what we're here for uh, on Against the Law, to dispel ancient history myths. And I'm really glad that you could join us for this uh, episode, which is the last in our trilogy on science. And you could join us next time for Against the Law. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can always choose to support us on Patreon. We've got all sorts of tiers for every budget, starting from just £3 a month. Benefits include getting each episode a day early, stickers and your name in cuneiform. You can find us on Twitter at Against Law and you can also find us on TikTok at Against the Law Podcast. We're also always happy to hear suggestions, questions about the podcast and other requests if you want to email us. Our email is againstthelawpodcast at gmail.com.